Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jolie Lamb. She's an assistant professor in ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of California, Irvine. And we're going to talk about her research. So, Jolie, thanks for coming. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me about your work. What do you cover in your research? Well, I run the Oceans and Human Health Laboratory, which we call the HOPE Lab at the University of California, Irvine. And essentially, we have this solutions-driven research program that is at the interface of public health and ecosystem function. So the reason that we work on this topic is that the global population is expected to surpass 9.7 billion people by 2050, and more than half of these people will be living uh, within 80 kilometers of the coastline. So essentially, we're looking into 21st century problems and thinking about 21st century solutions for solving them. Well, what do you think the impact is going to be? What's the impact right now with, that people have on the ocean that live you know, within this range? And then we'll you know, step it forward on what we think the impact will be after that. So currently, we have been really focusing on wastewater pollution and pathogens entering directly into the marine environment. So most people do not have access to sewage and wastewater facilities. And even in the United States and California, where we live, there is a lot of wastewater entering our marine environment. And this is filled with microplastics and human pathogens and marine pathogens. And so this is one of the big issues that we're starting to tackle right now. Are you looking at only people near oceans or what about lakes and rivers and everything? Well, currently we work on marine systems, but rivers and lakes are definitely, uh, and freshwater is definitely gravely impacted by this problem as well. But if you have a, a lake and rivers that take the empty into the ocean, then, you know, at what point does it involve you, even if it goes into the ocean, but it's generated somewhere inland, let's say? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, we work a lot on plastics and a large majority of the world's plastics enter through 10 main rivers in Southeast Asia. So we do know that what we produce inland and what enters our rivers and is a problem in the marine environment. So we do take that into consideration, but it's actually a really good question because we, as marine scientists and freshwater scientists, don't often collaborate. And I do think that's a way forward in our field. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> they should have like marsh conferences where the freshwater and the, you know, the saltwater scientists come together and work together. I mean, I think it's one of the issues with how we protect our freshwater systems and our terrestrial systems and our marine systems. Like sometimes there's this mismatch between how they're covered and managed. And so there's a way forward where we can start co-managing these together for, you know, similar outcomes. Okay, gotcha. Why did you pick that number of um, within 80 kilometers of an ocean part? Like, why is that distance important? Why not less or more? 
I think it could be either or a large majority of populations in, you know, for example, Southeast Asia eat primarily seafood. And so those people won't necessarily be on in coastal areas. Other communities that live very close to uh, the oceans use them for bathing and recreational use. And so I think it just depends on service that you're getting from the ocean and how close you live to it. And then the pollutants that go into the ocean. It's interesting. I wonder now how they react differently when they go into fresh water versus going into salt water and what the different compositions do to them and, you know, accelerate or slow their decay or change them differently, you know? That's a very good question. That's something that we're very interested in. So only two years ago, we realized that microorganisms, so human pathogenic organisms, have the ability to raft on plastic waste. And we know a lot of plastic waste enters freshwater environments and into marine environments. And so, so far, no one has looked into how microorganisms and human pathogens change and alter as they move through different freshwater systems into brackish water and then into the marine environment. So, in my opinion, I think this is a huge frontier in marine plastic research. Yeah, so are you uh, working on any specific research into plastics and into the oceans? Or like, you know, what's the focus within your, you know, within what you told me, what you do? Yeah, one of the main areas that we've been working on is plastics entering the ocean, but the fate of them. So only two years ago, we didn't even have a number about the amount of plastic that was entering and going to the seafloor, so ending up on our coral reefs. So our team spent about five years surveying coral reefs. I think we surveyed about a million corals over that five-year period. And we're finding that when this plastic waste was touching these corals, that they had you know, a 20-fold increase in their likelihood of having a disease. And so it was the first study to show that plastics that were in contact with another animal could actually have a disease outbreak. What kind of plastics tend to float and which ones tend to sink to the bottom and why? Yeah, that's a very good question. So generally, you know, plastics are quite buoyant that, however, they become fouled more and more. And as they become fouled, they actually sink. And so that was one of the reasons we were interested in how these highly colonized pieces of plastic, what they had on them, and then what they did once they, you know, found their way to the bottom of the ocean. Oh, and when you say foul, what do, what do they build up like bacterial biofilms and stuff that weighs them down and then causes them to sink or what happens? Yeah, exactly. So they, you know, micro uh, large plastics have, I've seen corals wrapped on them, um, algae, bacteria, viruses, uh, all sorts of microorganisms can adhere to these um, surfaces. And it's something that I find to be even almost a biosecurity threat because, you know, in 2011, we saw uh, a huge tsunami strike Japan and which resulted in about 150,000 lives being lost. A year later, we found a Harley Davidson that had been locked into this floating crate end up on the west coast of the United States. So it actually floated over a year, 4,000 miles, and, and ended up here. So one thing that we've been really fascinated by is what colonizes, you know, plastics or trash entering in one location like 
Southeast Asia. And then what does that look like when it, it, you know, comes across the Pacific and ends up in, you know, the West Coast or California where I live right now? Have you tried to put a, um, you know, a macroscopic object and tag it, like radio tag it so you can find it and sample it after it's been in the ocean for, you know, a week and then a month and then a year? Just follow it on its journey and see what uh, what the composition of what's on it and in it changes. Yeah, that's exactly what we're thinking about doing and running maybe small scale experiments first of so changing the water type uh, in small aquariums and then watching how the you know microorganisms change as you change the type of water. Uh, and so it's it's a little concerning uh, and also for antibiotic resistance. So we do know that antibiotic resistance is easily transferred by contact. And so if you have you know millions of pieces of microplastics with different types of antimicrobial resistance genes you know on their surfaces, and then they're coming in contact with these novel other plastics floating in the ocean. I, what what type of uh, human health disaster is going to emerge, you know, in, in the next 10 years? Well, what about uh, using boats or other objects that are in the ocean? I mean, yeah, I don't know what their hulls are made of. It's fiberglass or some other kind of material. But, you know, as a proxy, could you attach uh, stuff to boats under the water surface and use that as a proxy to, uh, you know, to hold on to the plastic object? Or could you look at boats that are already, already traversing or sitting in the water? And uh, use them as labs and see what uh, you know what's growing there. Um, you probably can't see me smiling, but I have proposed this idea uh, to a few colleagues, and we call it the the cruise liner study. And so we were thinking about taking this, you know, large trans-Pacific cruise and having you know the opportunity to possibly put these tags on on the hull of these. Uh, ships as they move across and also having hopefully a really nice vacation. Uh, but when COVID hit, we've had to, you know, kind of bring back what we could do uh, in the field. So I thought it was a crazy idea, but the fact that you came up with that on the fly, I think, uh, I think there's a way forward in this. Yeah. I'm just thinking of stuff that hangs out in the water. Yeah. But <laughs> so have you been able to see so far any objects that have been in the water or are you doing this in the lab or, you know, how are you studying this so far? You know, the first study that we did run was just surveys of where is macroplastic. So we surveyed, you know, several countries in Southeast Asia, you know, a million corals. And when we started finding this link between disease outbreaks and plastic, it was, you know, kind of groundbreaking. And so from that point, it's only been about a year and a half since that study came out. And so there have been a lot of groups starting to look at this uh, now in more detail. Um, we're actually kind of pivoting a little bit because I am interested in ways that we can disinfect these plastics before they hit the ocean. And so that's something that we've been working on in the last year. Instead of being under the water, we've been working on the shores. Why would you want to disinfect them though? Because we don't know what the, the colonies are like or if there's some surprising benefits to them. And you know, maybe we'll find really interesting, you know, bacteria and phage and things that can digest plastics. Yes, I, I do think that that is a, a really interesting aspect of research. At the moment, there are, is a lot of discussion about, you know, the Great Pacific, you know, garbage patch and removing all of the plastic that's in the ocean. In that regard, I sometimes am a, I'm on the side of the microbe. There could be, 
you know, a plethora of marine microorganisms on that great Pacific garbage patch that have come together and formed all sorts of new types of organisms. And so I think it's kind of an opportunity to look at what's out there. But the reason that we have been thinking about disinfecting plastics is that we know that plastics are easily colonized by uh, a Vibrio. And Vibrio is a very common, you know, marine uh, bacteria, but it's also the causative agent of cholera. And so a lot of these plastics are, you know, very innate and have no, you know, impact to our health. But if they're colonized by cholera, this could be, you know, really impactful for people that come in contact uh, with plastic in the ocean. There's lots of different kinds of Vibrio. And then the one that you know, becomes pathogenic. It has to have a certain phage that gives it the ability to do that. So, I mean, the Vibrio that are in the ocean on these plastics, they may have a totally different phage profile. I mean, they may totally be amenable to becoming cholera, but, you know, I don't know how hard it would be to get them, but if you look at their phage profile, that might be super interesting because they're in different environments and a different substrate. So again, they may have like very different phages that are predating them, you know? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting question. And so far, we haven't even gotten to that point in this research arena. So there are so many different ways forward. And it's pretty exciting to watch other groups tackle them because there's just so many problems. <laughs> so I'm always in awe of the amount of you know publications coming out and all of these different topics. How far is the closest garbage patch to you? If you got into a boat, how long would it take you to get to one? Uh, it would take quite a while. Uh, I have wanted to go out to it, but um, in the last two, you know, year, it's been a little tricky to get out to sea. It would take, uh, it would be a month trip at least um, there and back to, you know, get the data that we need. So it's quite a long uh, trip to sea. Really? How far out is it? Um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So, um, I, you know, I don't know the actual distance in kilometers but it's pretty far it's not it's like no, i guess probably thankfully it's not near you but it's far out there interesting other um i mean i guess it's not accessible either right now but in southeast asia i mean can you pretty much unfortunately like go right to the shore and uh you know sample plastics there or is there anywhere in the continental u.s where you can go to a shoreline and sample plastics to get a start Yes. So, uh, yeah, we have been sampling and doing these rapid tests for sampling uh, for pathogens on the surface of plastic. So mainly shellfish pathogens. So ones that you can, that have been created already, it's essentially kind of like a dipstick. And so it just tells you if the, if the plastic surface is positive for a vibrio pathogen that impacts uh, marine invertebrates like bivalves and um, other organisms that we consume. Do you know if um, local wildlife is, cons well, I guess it's being, they're in interaction with plastics, right? Like if you, uh, and if somehow you're able to like harvest clams off the shore, if they're any near you or, you know, other mollusks, and you know that there's a continuous supply of plastics, unfortunately, in that area, you know, maybe you can compare them um, and sample for everything or as much as you can versus like one from a, you know, you get in a store that's from, let's say, Southeast Asia, you know, probably the pathogens are gone, but maybe there is still some there before it's cooked. I mean, maybe you could do a, uh, a look at, you know, snail shells from a bunch of different places and see, and see if that correlates with the plastics in the area. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
that's a really good idea. And there we have been using um, bi- bivalves are a really good bioindicator because they're sessile, which means that they don't, you know, they don't move. So they're quite a good uh, indicator of what's going on in the local environment. And so we ran a study in Myanmar in Southeast Asia where we looked at the amount and types of plastic particles that were in uh, different muscles. And we were finding that we would pull out these micro particles and assess them, you know, using infrared spectroscopy. And we thought that they were all microplastics from, you know, using our microscopes. And then we ran them through our spectrometer and we're realizing that only half of the particles that we were finding were plastic. And surprisingly, we're finding all sorts of other types of microparticles in these foods, like diesel particles, paint chips. And a surprising finding was that we 14% of the particles were actually baby milk formula. So it kind of, yeah, it, it was actually a really clear indicator that there's probably sewage pollution going on uh, in these areas but also that we're eating a lot of other types of micro particles that, that aren't just plastic. Yeah. I would think that, you know, let's say, well, we'll just take muscles. I would think that, yeah, depending on what muscles are contaminated by, they all have very different microbiomes because of all those particles of material would attract or at least make it preferable for certain bacteria to be in abundance when others wouldn't. Yeah. That's a whole, she says a whole world of study right there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, we have 10 lifetimes of uh, topics that we could work on. So it's hard to know which direction to go in because there, you know, there's so many different questions to ask. But, you know, one really interesting way forward that we've been uh, looking at is we've been working on seagrasses and not a lot of people know about seagrasses because they're, I don't know, they're kind of the ugly duckling of the marine environment. Everyone, you know, pays a lot of attention to coral reefs and mangroves and they don't really know what these seagrasses are, but they're actually uh, found on every continental shelf except for Antarctica, right below the sea surface. Um, and they're actually the rainforest of the marine environment and they capture atmospheric carbon 35 t- uh, times faster than trees. But I thought seagrasses were really fascinating because uh, a lot of groups have been using them to look for uh, antimicrobial pharmaceutical properties. And there have been a lot of studies showing that extracts from seagrasses can uh, kill human pathogens in laboratory settings. And so what we've done is that we have gone out to look and see whether or not these seagrasses that are lining, you know, the shores of our, the entire world can actually mitigate human pathogens directly in the water column. And so two years ago, we found that they do, they reduce them by 50%. So the seagrasses are preferentially taking up a lot of carbon or, you know, what other substances? Where's carbon enough to look at? You know, we're still looking into the mechanisms of how the seagrasses could be uh, killing pathogens that are coming from wastewater directly into the ocean. Uh, One of them we think is by oxygenation. So since they are a plant, they they pulse out oxygen um, while they're photosynthesizing. And a lot of wastewater treatment plants use oxygen, uh, you know, as a way to remove pathogens naturally. Uh, So we do think that that could be uh, one of the mechanisms. 
but there could be a host of other options like the biocide itself uh, mitigating these pathogens. Well, what's noticed in an area where you're, um, you're spilling wastewater, you know, into a, maybe a shallow area and there's seagrass, which does the seagrass grow like crazy? Does it die off? Like what, what do the areas look like? So in Indonesia, where we work mainly on this topic, the seagrasses are lush. They're, you know, they have 90% coverage, but there is a a lot of wastewater entering in these areas. And so marine systems are very nitrogen limited and, you know, having this excess nitrogen actually can increase the productivity of marine organisms to a point Um, after too much nitrogen, you know, it can lead to all sorts of other uh, impacts that we're finding. So I think at one, you know, at one point the seagrasses may not be able to mitigate a lot of sewage because of the nitrogen levels, but we are starting to learn more and more about how, you know, our natural coastal systems, you know, have a lot of other functions that we we hadn't even imagined, you know, two years ago. Yeah, in an area where there's lots of seagrass, I wonder if the oxygen concentration of the water is much higher than other areas. It'd be interesting to see. I guess that I know it has a limit, the partial pressure, you know. There's only so much you can have in there, but I just wonder how much it is. And even in the air above it, I wonder if it creates a uh, an oxygen-rich zone that diffuses out from there and what that does. Seagrass is, you know, very understudied compared to other marine organisms. So there's so many frontiers in this, you know, in this topic. I mean, one thing that we are finding interesting is that we think that the seagrass formed its own, you know, local microbiome. So they have biofilms on the surfaces, which are actually really protective for the seagrasses. So the seagrass needs to have these biocides and these biofilms to be able to stay up in the water column. So they have to fight off other, you know, fouling organisms that are trying to drag them down so they can't photosynthesize. And we found that it's a very conserved microbiome in these seagrass systems. And one of the other mechanisms that we've been looking into is similar to like the gut microbiome. So for example, you know, babies can't ingest honey because they don't have the gut microbiome to be able to deal with um, botulism, for example. But human guts, you know, we can eat honey and nothing happens to us. We think that the seagrasses may be acting like this where exogenous pathogens that they don't see very, you know, they didn't evolve with like that come from sewage are no, you know, they can't battle with the local micro, you know, biological community that's existing in these meadows. I guess they are. If these, uh, the seagrasses are living and predominating and they look pretty healthy, then something's going on to make it work. Yeah. I think they're, um, they're really formulating the environment that they want to live in. And, you know, they've evolved over many, many years to be very stable. Uh, And so anything that hasn't evolved in this like very carefully crafted system, such as sewage, you know, doesn't seem to be doing well when they do, when these pathogens enter the marine environment. Yeah. I wonder if algal blooms are rarer when there's a lot of seagrasses, you know, if they're uh, preventing that from happening, let's say. That's a really good question. And there was a fantastic study that was run. I think it came out about a month ago in Seattle. And they showed that the seagrasses in Seattle actually were mitigating these harmful algae blooms and creating some kind of halo. So there was this 
area of inhibition around the meadows as well. So I think a lot of this research is starting to come together and and uh, in really exciting ways. There's one more question about seagrasses. Like what what kind of substrate do they grow on? They just grow in the bottom in shallow areas, or do they, you know, I don't know, do they grow in each other into like huge mats? Like how do they grow? So they yeah, they grow in, you know, just sandy, muddy substrates. They are slightly particular about the water depth that they uh, need to have. And they don't like too much wave energy and open ocean kind of systems. And so a lot of times you will see seagrasses side by side with coral reefs. So coral reefs are actually fantastic at protecting the seagrasses from the wave environments that they like. And in turn, what we have been finding is that the seagrasses are actually mitigating the diseases that are occurring on coral reefs. And so two years ago, we showed that coral reefs adjacent to seagrass meadows had a 50% reduction in diseases that affect corals. And we do think that it's the same mitigation of pathogen effect that we are seeing in human pathogens as well. Really interesting. Wow. What's your uh, research look like going forward, you know, for this coming year? What's like a project or two that you're focusing on? Currently, we are combining these thoughts about seafood as indicators. So I'm very interested in green infrastructure. And we talk about a lot about, you know, greening the urban environment. And we don't talk a lot about in my field, greening the marine environment. And so given that seagrasses and other you know, coastal organisms can potentially improve human health and uh, marine health, we're kind of thinking about green infrastructure. So we ran a study in uh, Seattle and we're finding that when we place these oyster cages all around Seattle Puget Sound area, that when these cages were placed inside of the seagrass meadows compared to these areas that didn't have them, we saw a 60% reduction in human pathogens that were inside of these uh, marine bivalves. And that has huge implications for seafood health and aquaculture and human health. So if you're going to harvest oysters or mussels or something, you you want to get them in an area that has seagrasses or I mean, is it possible to seed certain areas with seagrasses or if the conditions are right, they'll just grow? Yes, exactly. So I think there's, you know, two parts to that. One is protecting the seagrass that we have. So we're, you know, losing 7% of our seagrass meadows, you know, every 10 years. And so we need to start thinking about the actual value that they have and, and making sure that we're not losing any more. But also there's some fantastic success stories from groups in the Chesapeake Bay where they have lost the majority of the seagrasses that live there and have restored it. So there's an opportunity to actually uh, green the marine environment. Yeah, people that farm various fish and mollusks and everything, um, this could be a very good uh helpful commercial thing, you know, if they were able to know how to integrate seagrass into their farms and, you know, their farms are actually in the water um, and maybe they would uh, produce, you know, fish and other things that uh, have a lot less pathogens. Maybe they would grow better. Maybe they would help them succeed commercially too. Yeah, exactly. I I think there is a huge way forward for co-culturing marine systems and they do that in other, you know, other systems. Uh, with seaweeds and, you know, bivalves, but 
there hasn't been a lot of investigation in using seagrass in um, particular. Huh. Very interesting. Well, Jolie, it's very cool the work you're doing. Um, do you have a, a like a map of the whole U.S. and what kind of environments are created in all the bays and inlets and, you know, like in the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific side, the Atlantic side. I wonder if there's a, if you had a map like that, then you, you might have a lot more places to, uh, to do your research without having to go overseas if you, if you couldn't, you know? Yeah. So that's been our goal this year is to stay mostly in California. And I mean, the good thing about all of these ecosystems is that they exist everywhere and you know so every country is facing a plastic problem and they we also have seagrasses and we have coastal you know sewage pollution even here you know in California I see levels of wastewater indicator pathogens which are we use in terracoccus uh, at similar levels that we see in Indonesia so it's it's not something that's just a, a problem overseas it's definitely a problem that's here in the United States well, like you said, that Harley traveled all the way from Japan. You know, if someone's dumping stuff in, in Indonesia, how much of that is traveling all over the world and changing the, uh, you know, what the shorelines look like everywhere? I, I think that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> hmm. Well, very cool. Jolie, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? You can uh, go to my laboratory website. It is called the Hope Lab, and it's at oceanhealth.bio. Okay. Any other places or...? oceanhealth.bio is it uh, you can find me on twitter at jolie lamb great well jolie thanks for coming and i appreciate you being on the call great thank you so much if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.